What's up, Bike Rumor fans? Chances are you've heard of this little supper fest called the Belgian Waffle Ride. It's 100 plus miles of road, gravel, dirt, and sometimes even a little single track that's known for stuffing people full of fresh Belgian waffles, then pushing them to their limits before finishing off an up to 14 hour day with a nice cold beer. But do you know how it started and why it's fueled by waffles? In this episode, I interview event founder Michael Marks about the origin, but we quickly dive into some secret intel for the upcoming Asheville event. Michael is known for being very secretive about the route until the days right up before his event. And there's a good reason for that. We'll talk about that and the future of the waffle rides here and abroad. Please welcome Michael Marks. Hey, Michael, welcome to the Bike Rumor Show. How's it going? Good. Good morning. How are you doing? I'm good. It's bright and early for you. We're recording, you know, morning time East Coast and you're out in California. So it's super early morning time. But I think after this, you said you are basically headed out to clean up snack wrappers, gels and bar wrappers and all that junk from one of the climbs at the recent San Diego area Belgian waffle ride. Yeah, it's true. There's a there's an 11 mile dirt climb in this beautiful setting, but it's like the furthest away place and it's the hottest and i need to go out there and scrub that trail clean to make sure that uh, it's better than it was before we were there yeah yeah you guys are having a little bit of a heat wave out there eh? yeah it hasn't been the monstrous one that they've had all over the news but for the race two days ago easily hit 100 out there on the course the part where i'm going to today so it was plenty hot and humid, which I think affected people more so than they thought it would have. Yeah, I bet, because I don't normally associate the West, in particular desert, but even California, really as being all that humid compared to the East Coast. No, not at all. And typically, we don't have that much humidity. But then when we do, people aren't used to it here at all. And I think that affected people's performances on the weekend. Yeah, I bet. I'm signed up for the Asheville event, which is coming up in about a month, and there will definitely be a lot of humidity here. So we can talk about that and that event and any intel on that toward the end of this interview. I figured it'd probably be good to start with just kind of a little bit about the Belgian waffle ride concept, where the idea came from, and maybe what's your elevator pitch on this for somebody who's never even heard of it? (laughs) Well, I'll give you the the genesis. There's this uh, ride in LA area called the French Toast Ride that had been done for decades. And it was an invite-only ride. And the Jaeger family would make French toast for everyone. And they'd go out and ride 118 miles and hammer each other. And there were sprint points and climb points. And then you came back and feasted. And it was just such a great family thing that I asked the progenitor of that event, hey, look, you know, I'm Belgian. I love one-day classic racing. I'm also, I have a UCI Pro card for cyclocross. I love everything Belgian. Would you mind if I co-opted your idea and made this Belgian waffle ride thing and then turned it into something big over time? And he said, sure, go for it. And then Dave came down and actually did the first one with us. And ever since, we've been just plugging away at building this waffle thing. So it really started as a selfish endeavor for me because of the Belgian heritage, my love of those long races and trying to create a race that, you know, maybe I could do well at. So it's it's basically a, a 7, 8, or 10, or 12-hour cyclocross race. And that's what it continues to be. So it's not a gravel race. It's a one-day classic. 
but it gets lumped in with all the other gravel races, which we understand and celebrate. Yeah, which I think for, I mean, myself included, is a little bit misleading because I remember way back in the day, I always use Neil Shirley, which for people who don't know him, he's one of the marketing guys at Envy Now, but just an ultra, ultra fast guy and super nice. I always use him as kind of my litmus test for, okay, how fast and hard is a ride going to be? And when he comes back and A, crushes the course, of course, but also said it was really freaking hard, then you know it's going to be a fast, hard race. And I remember talking to him after one that he did quite a few years ago. So it must have been one of the earlier ones. And he said one of the hardest things about prepping for that race is that it's both pavement and some kind of gravel, dirt roads, like, you know, cobbles, whatever it is, it's a, it's a total mix. And so you can't go with an ultralight road bike setup. And you certainly don't want to be pedaling a full on gravel or cross bike, you know, with the bigger, heavier tires for the whole thing. So it's really this balancing act of how do you pick the right wheels and tires and the right bike for this? But what's your strategy? You know what? That's so true. And our event wouldn't be where it is without Neil. Neil was from the beginning, supportive, loving, you know, he wrote about it in the magazine at the time. He won the the event numerous times. And so I've spent a lot of time out on the bike with him, you know, in the lead pack racing. And he's just an incredible gentleman, but it was really his encouragement and support that has put us where we are now. So we're forever indebted to Neil. But I would say this, a couple of days ago, I rode the whole waffle course on the same bike that I raced in 2013. So 25 millimeter tires, 5511 on the front and a 4230 was the lowest or highest gearing that I had, which eight years later, I wish I had more gearing, but I didn't flat and managed to make it through the course quite easily on those 25s. But what's happened in those eight years is they invented disc brakes and gravel bikes (laughs) and wide tires and convince people that they need really, really, really wide tires. And for our event, it's more comfortable for some that ride in the dirt to have those bigger, wider tires so they don't flat or they can make it through the sometimes treacherous and very challenging rocky sections that we have that are made for mountain bikes, not for road bikes. But overall, it's quite possible to do the whole event on 25 millimeter tires and, and rim brakes, but you're probably going to be more comfortable, you know, adding some rubber in there and running 32s. The winners were probably all on 28s. Mm. But to your point about Neil and the dynamic of the event is that you're constantly questioning, do you have the right tire? Do you have the right bike? Do you have the right gearing? <laughs> And so it's more of a nightmare for people that have to cogitate on on these things and make final decisions of, of which, you know, they're sometimes the morning of they're changing things out because someone convinced them otherwise. And I guess that's part of the fun of the event. Yeah, uh, it's fun in air quotes, maybe. <laughs> but yeah, like I'm already, you know, where I'm a month away and I'm kind of not stressing, but like. Now you've got me rethinking, right? Like I've, I've got some 700 by 35 tires headed my way okay. that I was going to use, okay. but now I'm thinking, no, oh, but maybe that's a little much. No, for Asheville, it's a different course, different gravel. Everything's different about it. We already pointed out it's going to be humid. There's going to be a lot more climbing you know, per mile than uh, the event here, but a lot of that's in dirt. So I think your 35s might be perfect or maybe... 
maybe even you might want to consider 38s, but you live nearby, so you can, um, you probably have a better assessment of that than I do. But if I were you, I would ride 35s. Okay. Well, good. Thank you for that. And I do want to talk to you about some intel, but first, let's kind of progress along the history of the event a little bit. I think one of the other things that might throw people is that, at least nowadays, I don't, I'm curious if you've done this all along, but you know, for Asheville, like there is no course map on the website and there's no exact distance. In fact, about a week or so ago, we were looking at it because I have a couple of friends signed up as well. And they're like, oh yeah, it's going to be 140 miles and stuff. And then I was telling some friends that live in Asheville and they looked it up. They're like, no, it's only 104 miles. So you've changed it, I think. But then also you don't actually let anybody know what the course is going to be until the night before, which has to mess with people's heads. Yeah. For this recent event, I let people know a few days before what the course was so they could download it. But it's also very similar to what it's been in the past. What I've tried to do is change the course every year. But what that means is I have to deal with the county. And oftentimes I end up submitting as many as 20 different courses before they approve one, which takes months. We got our permit two days before the event this year, which is faster than normal. <laughs> Dang, that's uh, got to mess with your head. <laughs> oh, it's terrible because I go to bed thinking, am I going to have to email 4,000 people? Sorry, folks, we don't have a permit. We're not going to be able to uh, do the race. Y'all just go on home. But for Asheville, we had to move the event because of COVID from the Sierra Nevada Brewing Company to ride Canuga, And therefore, we had to change the course it's not 144, nor is it 104, but elevation-wise, it'll be more than 10,000 for sure. Even if it's just 100 miles, it'll be more than 10,000. But given the humidity, the time of year, we didn't want to send people out on a 144-mile journey that they might not come back from. So it's <laughs> going to be you know, in the sweet spot where it's a really, really, really hard day in challenging terrain, but not something that uh, people are going to, you know, throw their bikes into the river and never come back. <laughs> yeah, I've seen that happen. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I've thrown my bike a few times. <laughs> it is, uh, you know, for people who haven't ridden Blue Ridge Mountain area, Pisgah and all that, like it is, it is no joke. It is going to be a hard day and especially 10,000 plus feet of climbing. Like we just rode this past weekend, my friend and I rode 50 miles and ended up with about 2,600 feet of climbing. And that was all pavement. It was just a road ride. And it was like, yeah, you know what? That was hard. I've got yeah. some training to do still. When we're done here, I can share with you the uh, most recent iteration of the course that is has been submitted for approval. So you can kind of see what it's all about. And I think you'll get a good chuckle out of it. <laughs> Great. Um, I appreciate that kind of sneak peek. And so <laughs> as far as the event for Asheville, people signed up, I guess we, let's go ahead and talk about that one. And then we'll kind of go back in time a bit. But uh, when can we expect like a GPX file and route course? So because I, I presume you want people loading that into their computers ahead of time so that nobody goes off track and just kind of has a little bit of a safety element, I think, to having more information than less. Yeah, I mean, what I can do is I can use the template that we've developed over the last decade for the San Diego event, which is people really want to know the course. And so what I do is one sector at a time, I email out a description 
of what that sector is going to provide them in terms of experience. Uh, and then you add that up and people start to connect the dots and try and imagine what the course would be based on the sector information that I provide them. So it's sort of a, a funny tease and some people take it as a challenge to put the puzzle together. So I'm going to start doing that this week for Asheville. The week of the event, we'll be able to hopefully send out the file for people to download and then they can study the course, but no one's going to be able to go out and recon it with any ability to hammer it because it'll be too close to race day to do so. And that's you know typically what we do, keep people on their toes. You'll have a better sense of it than most, but we'll keep that just between you and I, okay? <laughs> right. Nobody listening will ever know. Okay, good. Cool, man. That's that's uh, exciting. And I think it's fun, right? It adds element of fun. But I wonder, too, is it is there a strategic element in that in terms of preserving the course as well? Because if everyone went out and pre-rode, like, it could potentially turn off the people permitting it if there's, like, just masses of people riding, you know, these public roads. Absolutely. For San Diego, there's, you know, six or seven municipalities, numerous parks, private landowners, all of whom we have to get uh, permits from. And then ultimately you get the county permit that sits on top of all those. If we did send out the map to everybody, they would be going on private land through parks and other places that they're not supposed to be except on race day. And so, yeah, we don't want to jeopardize our ability to send everyone on that great course that we've created. So it is important for us to keep it secret just to protect our ability to do so. Yeah. So the events, I guess, was 2013 the first year, first event? No, it, we did it in uh, 2012. So this was our 10th. I was hired to turn around this company called Spy Optic, uh, which was a eyewear company here. And so I started the BWR is a marketing exercise. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. To showcase the ethos of the spy brand. And we had introduced a couple of cycling sunglasses around that. And that was, you know, really the genesis was being at spy and having the ability to create something unique like that. And then of course it blossomed from there. And when I left spy five years later, I just took the BWR with me and we've continued to expand upon that idea in meaningful ways. And now I get to go party with you in Asheville soon because <laughs> of it. Yeah, it should be fun. So this first couple of years, how many people showed up and how has it progressed? Like you mentioned 4,000, but I imagine you didn't have 4,000 for that first year event. <laughs> we had, I personally invited 136 people. And 118 of them finished. And that was by far the uh, easiest year. And then <laughs> we, uh, that was only 118 miles. Then the next year we started charging people and the, it, the field doubled and then doubled again. And it, it grew, you know, every year it grew significantly. And somebody said, someday you're going to have a thousand people. <laughs> and we kind of laughed. <laughs> and then it just kind of keeps on doubling. I think we had maybe 1,800 people register two years ago. We didn't get to host it last year, but four of us went out and rode the 140-mile course that I had created just because you know we didn't want that thing to go to waste. Uh, and then this year, we had 4,000 people sign up. Wow. So I don't think we can accommodate 8,000 next year, but you know maybe 5,000 is a good sweet spot. I, I suspect it'll 
sell out rather quickly this year. Yeah. Do you look at other events for kind of tips on how to manage it? Because doesn't, you know, like I know Levi's Grand Fondo is a little bit north of you guys, but I think they pull way more than that, don't they? Yeah. I mean, it's a Grand Fondo. So they have all their varying distances and ways for people to plug in. So I think they get quite a few people. I don't know that they get that many, but, you know, they have their varying distances for people to plug in and do that ride. And I think they get a few thousand people for that. But that's, you know, on the road and probably easier to manage. But it's a great run event from what I'm told. But I really don't, we don't pay attention to what the other events are doing other than like the other gravel events. We like to cheer them on and sometimes go and do their events and also offer them comp entries to our events. We just try and do our thing as uniquely as we can. And just really, it's our own internal drive to create an experience for people that they wouldn't get anywhere else. So we just keep challenging ourselves each year to add a bit more and make it a bit more of a a fun experience across the board. And now it's a three-day event instead of the silly one-day event with waffles in the parking lot. Now we take over a whole city and, you know, have a quick cross race on Friday, uh, Expo and various other rides that happen on Friday and Saturday before the big Sunday event. And we're just going to keep doing that. Very cool. So for 4,000 people, because I think you guys have waffles in the morning, right? Uh, We do every year. This year with COVID, we had to do prepackaged waffles in the morning and then warm, buttery waffles when people finished. Right. Well, let's just jump back a couple of years, even 1,800 people. How in the world do you prepare 1,800 waffles like in such short time span? Because I imagine people are showing up, you know, within that kind of 60 to 90 minutes before a race starts so they can do what they got to do. That's a lot of waffles in a short amount of time. Yeah, it's incredible. We have friends that have been doing it with us every year called the Gear Grinder Grill. They're cyclists, but they're really good at making food. So they've gotten it dialed in because every year it would it would get harder and harder. They just figured out how to start making the waffles earlier, how to have enough irons to, to get it done. But to be honest, at 1800, two years ago was a huge challenge for them. And when we told them how many people had signed up <laughs> this year, they were freaking out. But fortunately, with all the COVID stuff, we were able to do the workaround so that they didn't have to uh, to do that first thing in the morning. Because 4,000 people means at least 8,000 waffles. Dang. So it's How pretty many crazy. people are signed up for Asheville? Oh, we had to cap it at 1,500. So a reasonable number of waffles, comparatively yeah. speaking, I guess. Yeah. And, you know, we're working with Sierra Nevada, who is an incredibly supportive organization, and they're helping to ensure that we get the best experience for people in terms of their culinary dining before and after, right? The whole experience should be really fun, including the beer that we're all going to drink after. Nice. So they're still involved, even though you can't host it at their facility. Yeah. And they're incredibly supportive, too. Very cool. Well, it's not like Ride Canuga is a bad spot. That, that place is incredible. And I would actually, you know, encourage people to maybe extend their stay for a few days after and bring their mountain bikes because um, the trails there are just, it, it, I, let me rephrase that. Bring your e-mountain bikes because that place is purpose built for e-mountain bikes and it is really cool. Yeah. My brother's coming out just to partake of the mountain biking. I'm sure he'll help us too, but 
he's excited to go explore the park. Sweet. So what else should people know about Belgian Waffle Ride? Well, we have uh, we have four events now. So it goes San Diego. Next year, it'll be May 1, by the way, back to normal. Then we've got Asheville, as you mentioned, in a month. And we need to figure out what's the best month for an Asheville event, you know, in the future. But then in September, we have Cedar City, which we did last year. And then on Halloween, we've got Lawrence, Kansas. So there's four, and we'll continue to expand them. We're looking at Austin, uh, Victoria, BC. I've been working on one now for a few years in Boulder. And then we've got discussions in Nebraska and other cool places. So we're going to continue to expand the waffle to places that I think can create a unique experience unlike the other venues. So that's sort of the benchmark we have is it let's just not do one for doing the waffle for the sake of doing the waffle, but let's create a unique experience that's different than all the others in this place. So that's what we're working on. Very cool. Yeah, it's exciting. That's probably part of the fun of it too, is like getting to scout some new locations and the creativity that would go into how could we create a course here and like how can we make it, you know, not just special and fun on its own, but unique from the others. That would be a fun, creative challenge, I think. Yeah, I agree. It's super fun. And I kind of look at it like uh, from a musician's point of view is, you know, what do we want this album to be like? What's the theme and how do we put all these songs together? to make for a really good experience over the course of the entire album. And what's the arc of that album like? So it's sort of like 70s albums where there was actually a theme and thought put into each song and how they connected. And that's kind of how I look at each event. What's the experience going to be from start to finish? Sweet. Is there any plans? I mean, Canada, you know, technically international, but like, do you have plans down the road to expand this to other countries as well? Yeah, it's funny. I didn't mention, but Japan in Tokyo, that's uh, an unlikely place, but I think that'll be the first international event that we do besides Canada. That'd be rad. It's funny, man. Like While I was kind of thinking up that question, you were talking earlier, Like I was thinking, man, Japan would be rad. So it's funny. Wouldn't it be? I, yeah. Yeah, it is. I mean, I just think there's so much in that country. Tokyo is such a big city, you know, but man, the, some of the outer regions, not outer, but like the other prefectures there that are far more remote i think logistically it'd be a challenge but the train system is so good there it's just man what a beautiful country that is yeah and imagine you know having both sort of a urban experience or at least start and finish and then you know heading into those misty mountains if you will and you know skinny roads cutting through mountains and beautiful vistas and up mountains and down mountains and and around and then back to an urban setting. I think it would be really enthralling for people. And I think we'd bring a lot of gravel enthusiasts from around the world to Tokyo for that. It'll be interesting to see what happens now with the Olympics and all the challenges that they're having with COVID. Uh, That's, you know, on the top of the news right now. But in the future, once things get sorted out, I, I can't wait to have that kind of an offering on our plate. That would be awesome. I'd sign up for sure. Speaking of COVID, let's kind of talk about that for a second. You mentioned having to do prepackaged waffles, but then also the numbers you know, doubling for the San Diego event. Do you think that was just, do you think that would have happened organically? Or like, did you have 4,000 signed up for last year when you had to postpone the event? Or do you think people are just like ready to get the hell out of their houses and go do something? Um, Yeah, last year, there was that many people. There was that 
that interest in it. So I think it had doubled because what happens is if you have 1,800 people telling everyone on social media their great experience and showing photos, because we create photos for everybody to share that are watermarked. And so people learn about this crazy thing called the Belgian Waffle Ride. Then we do a film that goes on Amazon Prime. So enough people see it and then they go, wow, that's crazy. That's I want to do that. So COVID didn't really have an impact on increasing the drive. But what it did do is create a lot of havoc for us in terms of the special considerations and planning and things that we had to do in advance of the event. So last year for Cedar City, we had to create a COVID plan because no one had one. And then what we did is just shared it with all the other race directors so that they would have an easy template and wouldn't have to spend all the months and time building something like that. And then we had to rebuild another COVID contingency plan here in San Diego using doctors and epidemiologists to help build that plan. So we spent money again on that. But what was crazy is once the event actually happened, we didn't have to implement any of those safety protocols. And it was this weekend was the first time, like, I think a lot of people felt, wow, it's back to normal. Because really only the people serving food were wearing masks. No one else had a mask on. Everyone was congregated. You can imagine a race with 4,000 people and then each person brings, say, 1.25 people with them. They're all congregated in a you know somewhat tight area and no masks. So it was really kind of a trip to be a part of that, see it all happening. Yeah, I, I, it's still the idea of that still freaks me out a little bit, but it's I'm definitely warming up to it more and more. And it is it's a little weird, you know, just for me personally. Like even just two weeks ago, going to Costco, pretty much everybody wore masks, and then like a couple of days ago, I'd say maybe forty percent were. It was just such a sharp drop off in mask usage and just kind of like this all of a sudden it's like yeah whatever back to normal which is funny yeah. when you look at the vaccination rates right like where wherever you stand on vaccination it's like the two numbers the vaccination rates and the, the apparent mask usage those numbers do not exactly line up on a scale but and that varies from state to state and county to county right absolutely yep yeah Interesting. So cool, man. Well, I'm looking forward to Asheville and I appreciate the intel. So as far as that course goes, I know you're going to share some course intel with me, but for everybody listening that might be signed up for this or, or still looking at it, I think, is there still room to sign up for Asheville? I think there's a few more spots to sign up. Yeah. I think a few people have backed out. So mm, there's okay. a few spots, but we've have it capped at 1500, unfortunately. Right. Is there any other quick intel you want to give people that are coming to that event <laughs> tire choice hydration food plan yeah i think i think we covered it all yeah what if, so rest stops and stuff i'm just assuming there's rest stops for an event of this size you know along the way what's what are you guys going to be stocking at those more waffles we had nine official feed zones the, this last weekend and many unofficial and i think we'll have six or seven official ones strategically placed and then several unofficial ones to make sure that, you know, every 20 miles or less, people are getting access to water, hammer nutrition, food, whether that's, you know, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches or pretzels or potato chips or all the hammer nutrition stuff that we have. Very cool. Good deal. Yeah, it's good to know because I think that way I don't have to like strap a bunch of extra bottle cages to the bike. You know, two should be plenty. No, you're fine. Yeah. 
Awesome, man. Well, I'm looking forward to it. And uh, yeah, thanks for making the time. So if people want to check it out, it's just belgianwaffleride.bike online, correct? Yep. Awesome, man. Thanks a ton. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll see everybody in Nashville. I look forward to riding with you. Hey, thanks for listening. I'll be honest, I'm still freaking out a little about 104 miles with 11,000 feet of climbing in Pisgah because I know that area and it's gonna be brutal in August. But at least I know I'm on the right track with tire selection now. I had asked Michael about offering our listeners a promo code for this event, but with it being so close to selling out, we decided that's something we'll do for a future event. So be sure to hit subscribe and stay tuned for more great cycling stories and interviews here. You never know when a little bonus nugget of goodness might be tucked into an episode. Before you go, or maybe when you finish your ride or wherever you're listening to this podcast, could you tap that button and give us a quick five-star rating and a quick review? That is the currency of podcasts, and it really helps us reach more people and grow this thing to get more and more great guests for you. Thanks, and until next time, keep the rubber side down.